Isn't it remarkable how the events recorded in God's Word can often provide insight for the roots of discord that our generation faces even today? This is Dennis Peterson, and thanks for joining me today on Reclaiming Your Legacy. After Gideon died in the book of Judges, the people of Shechem gave a wicked son of Gideon 70 pieces of silver, which he used to hire worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. We read that in Judges chapter 9. Well, in his historical review of how wicked rulers of the past used identity politics and community organization tactics to gain power, Bill Federer explains at a recent series of presentations he did for Pastor Jack Hibbs some very eye-opening principles. Be sure to access the complete illustrated presentation at the link in today's program notes for Reclaiming Your Legacy at ReclaimYourLegacy.com. Seeing how notable villains of history built a pattern for modern treachery helps us all identify some of the subtle schemes of the devil that he's using to condition impressionable people to follow immoral, illegitimate elitists until God's providence uses others to overthrow them. A big part of their strategy is to create discord. Today, picking up where we left off last time, Bill Federer's talk at Chino Hills Calvary Chapel wisely guides us to understand how evil people follow deceitful tactics to overthrow a whole society. They did it many times in the past, and they're very effectively attempting to do it today. Imagine creating groups just for the sake of pitting them against each other. So Castro said in Cuba, he says, the revolution needs the enemy. The proletariat does not flee from the enemy. It needs the enemy. The revolutionary needs his antithesis, which is the counter-revolutionary. If enemies were lacking, they had to be fabricated. In other words, you can't organize your people against something if, if there's nothing to organize against. You've got to have an enemy to organize against. And so how did this begin to come to America? You had a Pullman railroad car company in Chicago. In 1894, there was a downturn in the economy and they couldn't pay all their workers. And so Eugene Debs comes to uh, Chicago and he identifies groups of the factory workers and the workers, uh, the, the factory owners and the workers, and the workers are, um, have grievances, right? They're not being paid. And so he organizes them to riot and they destroy $80 million worth of railroad cars in 27 states. Could you imagine rioting and burning going all across the country? And, uh, and the entire country was brought to a standstill because the railroad shipped the mail and all the supplies and all the products. I mean, it was a supply line shortage. And then Eugene Debs started the Socialist Party of America. And he ran for president five times between 1900 and 1920. One time he ran from prison. <laughs> and then in 1920, branching off of the Socialist Party of America is the Communist Party USA. And they run candidates for president every year from 1920 to 1940. What happened in 1940? That's when Democrat President Franklin Roosevelt made a treaty with Stalin during World War II the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And so the Communist Party USA said, why should we run our own candidate when here we have Democrat candidates that are making treaties with the socialists? 
And so from that time on, they began to infiltrate that party and try to the other party and, and to some extent. And um, remember Ronald Reagan? He said, I didn't leave the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party left me. All right, so this is when they began to come in. And um, now let's go across the ocean to Germany again. And so we talked about uh, Lucifer sowing discord in heaven, Abimelech sowing discord, Machiavelli sowing discord. We talked about the British sowing discord to take over India in these different countries. And um, we just got done talking about Eugene Debs and uh, his discord. And now we're going to talk about Germany. 1920s and 30s, they have a republic. The people are ruling through their elected representatives. And somebody starts a political party in Germany. His name's Hitler, and the name of his party is the National Socialist Workers' Party. You know it as Nazi. Nazi stands for National Arbeitser, which is the German word for worker, Socialistisch Party. And he has a sort of a, a violent arm to his party. Uh, sort of like Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons, like Machiavelli paid people to create the rioting, and his were called brown shirts. And they were nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's opponents and shout down the speakers and disrupt the meeting and leave it in chaos. And then the brown shirts would lock arms and block buildings and block access to buildings and block streets. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking streets? And, um, and then they went into the cities and they smashed windows and looted and set on fire over 7,000 stores owned by Jews in the night of broken glass, Kristallnacht. And then their capital got set on fire. It was an insurrection. And Hitler's people that did it Yet he used the chaos of the crises to f falsely accuse his political opponents and have them hunted down and have them arrested and have them put in jail and prison indefinitely and have them falsely accused and have them shot without a trial. And when the dust settled, Hitler didn't have any political opponents left. And Germany transitioned from a republic to a dictatorship. Right, so the same way, you know, Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons, Machiavelli, right, and the British wanted to stir up the Indians, and so here you got Hitler's brown church creating the crisis, and then he comes along promising to fix it. And um, I thought this was sort of interesting. Uh, Tucker Carlson showed this video of a security camera at the Capitol, and like 16 people that are the first ones in the Capitol, all dressed in black with tactical gear on them, and... Um, uh, it doesn't look like it, they were spontaneous people at a Trump rally, right? And so then he uh, says, uh, organizers of January almost certainly were F FBI operatives, according to Tucker Carlson. Isn't that interesting? So they do something called blame shifting, which uh, Sigmund Freud coined the term. It's where rude and hateful people call everyone they don't like rude and hateful. <laughs> We've all met someone like that, right? Little kids do it. I'm not the mean one. You're the mean one. So it's, it's called blame shifting. Karl Marx says, accuse others of what you do. It's gotten into politics where they do the hateful thing and they accuse you of being hateful. They do the intolerant thing, they accuse you of being intolerant, right? They project their, their negative uh, qualities onto you. Let's say there's a candidate running for president colluding with Russia, giving away a fifth of the US uranium when their secretary of state in exchange for $145 million uh, Russian oligarch donations to her Clinton Foundation. 
then she wants to pay for a steel dossier to accuse her opponent of colluding with Russia. And the investigation process is simply to subpoena and get all the information that could convict her and destroy it. Destroy laptops and hard drives and text messages and cell phones and so forth. And let's say there's another candidate that's extorting Ukraine saying, stop investigating my son or I will hold back billions of US dollars to your country. Well, you want to accuse your opponent of extorting Ukraine and even have an impeachment trial, right? You accuse them of exactly what you're doing. Why? Because they have to back up, their names associated with it, the media, and if they ever, people, if, if it ever gets pointed back at them, by that time, the water is muddied. The public does not know who to trust and they get a pass. So um, anyway, uh, so let's look at after World War II. Is this interesting? Yes. Um, after World War II, <laughs> I, I know it's difficult to clap because it's not that uh, encouraging of a message. But um, so after World War II, Germany and France and England give independence to their former colonies. And so now you have brand new countries. India is now free from Britain, and so they have their own country, and they elect their own leaders. Egypt becomes its own country, and Jerusalem, Israel, right? It comes, has its, and then Albania, Bulgaria, Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, all these brand new countries with brand new leaders, and they're climbing out of the post-World War II crisis, and it looks hopeful, except the KGB decides to send agents into these countries and do critical theory where they would observe all the different groups and begin to divide the people up. Ethnically, Bosnian, Croats, Serbs, religiously, Sunni, Shia, Orthodox, economically, racially, it doesn't matter. They would organize them into haves and have-nots, victims and oppressors, and they would orchestrate protests that they would escalate into riots and violence and bloodshed. Why bloodshed? Because once blood is shed, people are emotionally upset and they don't want to sit down and rationally talk about it. So you get them into the realm of emotion, then you can manipulate them very easily because they're in fear. It's called fear mongering. It's a literal tactic that is used. And then they would co-opt the media with bribes and threats to blame the new leader of the new country for all of these problems. And then they would nurture weak links in the military and when the country gets panicky enough with all the riots and violence, they would do a coup or a rigged election, replace the leader with a Soviet puppet. The violence would suddenly stop. Everybody would have a breather until they realized they just gave up the farm. And now they're ruled by a Soviet puppet. 45 countries fell to communism this way. It's called behind the iron curtain. Now, at the same time, it's going on in China and you have Mao Zedong. He does a little tweak on it. Instead of doing the crises so that you can usurp power, Mao Zedong came up with the concept of a continuous revolution, a continuous crisis, like a continuous pandemic, right? You want to melt this thing for all it's worth. You want to keep the people in fear. And uh, now Truman does nothing when these countries are falling to behind the Iron Curtain or when China is going the wrong direction. And... Um, uh, because he thought the United Nations that he helped form at the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco uh, would bring world peace. Well, the next president is Eisenhower, and he can either sit back and let these countries fall to the communists or do something about it. 
Eisenhower said, the United Nations has seemed to be two distinct things to the two worlds divided by the Iron Curtain. To the free world, it seems to, that should be a constructive form. To the communist world, it has been a sounding board for their propaganda, a weapon to be exploited in spreading disunity and confusion. So, 1953, Iran sides with the Soviet Union and nationalizes the oil industry. And you're like, well, big deal, Iranian oil. Oh, wait a second. Britain has no oil fields. So in 1908, Britain formed the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. You know it better as BP. And so Iran takes BP, the Iranian uh, Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. Britain has no oil. It's got an oil shortage. So they appeal to Eisenhower for help. And Eisenhower approves the first CIA operation to overthrow a country's leader. It's Operation Ajax. And the CIA operative on the ground is Kermit Roosevelt Jr., the grandson of Teddy Roosevelt. And he's an expert in foreign languages. He goes to Tehran and he does the same thing in reverse. He recruits mobsters and gangsters and radical imams. And he stages protests and riots and they attack mosques and co-ops the media with bribes and threats to blame the leader Mazadek for all the problems and nurtures weak links in the military. And when the country gets panicky enough, they go in, put Mazadek under house arrest, lock him away for the rest of his life where he dies and they replaced him with the Shah, who loved America and did have a rightful claim to the throne. And the CIA did the same thing in 1954, and the same thing in the Congo in 1960, Dominican Republic, Brazil, Chile 1973, and the KGB did the same thing, with Brezhnev helping Yasser Arafat to bring division in the Middle East, and Brezhnev helping Castro take over Cuba, and hundreds of coup attempts in Latin South America and in Africa. This is called the Cold War. And these tactics have been perfected and perfected and perfected. And we saw co-opting of different federal departments under the term of President Obama. And so the IRS began to be used for political purposes with Lois Lerner targeting conservative organizations. And, uh, and then the NSA began to target political opponents of that administration and so forth. And we're beginning to see that happen in other different federal departments. Now, Chris Matthews, I thought it was interesting. His last time on television is after a Democrat primary debate. And some of the candidates were talking about socialism. He says, I remember the Cold War. I've seen what socialism is like, and I don't like it, okay? It's not only not free, it doesn't work. I believe if Castro and the Reds had won, there would have been executions in Central Park. After that, he was relieved of his employment. And um, so Castro executions, he had an executioner named Chai Guevara. So Chai Guevara wrote a letter and he says, we executed many people by firing squad without knowing if they were fully guilty. I'd like to confess, I discovered that I really like killing. <laughs> Blind hate against the enemy, this is Chai Guevara, um, creates a forceful impulse that cracks the boundaries of natural human limitations, transforming the soldier into an effective, selective, cold killing machine. A people without hate cannot triumph. Right? So we talk about loving and forgiving. The gospel says, you know, turn the other cheek, love those, pray for those that despitefully use you. This is opposite of that. Another tactic is economic. And so Karl Marx, Frederick Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, 1848. And then they said this, that they were alchemists of the revolution. Their business consists in spurring it into artificial crises. And Frederick Engels, every new crisis must be more serious and more universal than the last. Every fresh slump must ruin more small capitalists. 
This will increase the number of the unemployed and in the end, commercial crises will lead to a social revolution. So socialism, remember Plato? It's the ruling class and the ruled class. There is no place for a middle class. The middle class are the only ones that can pool their money and challenge the ruling class. So they want to get rid of the middle class. So when Lenin took over in Russia, he killed all the Kulak farmers. They were the wealthy middle class. And he wrote to his men, don't just kill them, but hang them up in the town square and P.S. get tougher men. Stalin killed the middle class, and we began to see this. And so when Stalin is in charge of Russia, 1934, this cartoon editorial is in the Chicago Tribune. Plan of action for the U.S. Spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery. Bust the government, blame the capitalists for the failure, junk the Constitution, and declare a dictatorship. On the side, it says it worked in Russia. So spend, spend, spend under the guise of recovery. What's that? That's trillion-dollar stimulus programs and infrastructure programs that are not intended to stimulate. It is called the Great Reset, where you totally spend, spend, spend until all the money is worthless and everybody's savings evaporates and you have all these people, especially older people that are on fixed income. What are they going to do? They're going to go to the government and say, help. And the government says, okay, we'll help you. And they're going to give them stuff, but then they're going to say, okay, you want to continue to get this stuff? You've got to get this shot. You've got to do that. You've got to do this. You've got to do that, right? It's like the drug dealer gets them hooked. So it's a back door into socialism. So again, two ways to take over socialism. You can come in with tanks and shoot, or you can bankrupt it until everybody is dependent on the government. It's called the Cloward Piven strategy. Um, but we began to see some of that during the Great Depression, and everybody uh, goes to the government for help, and FDR is happy to help. But in exchange, people give up their freedoms. Uh, David Horowitz, a former communist, now a conservative writer, said, the issue is never the issue. The issue is always the revolution. Civil rights, women's rights is never the real cause. Women and blacks are only instruments in the larger cause, which is power. Battles over rights and other issues, according to Alinsky, should never be seen as more than occasions to advance the real agenda, which is the accumulation of power. So the people that are down at the street, I love those on the street interviews, they interview some kid. Why, aren't you here at the, why are you here at this riot? Uh, I don't know, I got a text invisible from my professor, said I get extra credit if I show up and, and start smashing windows and stuff. You know, but Lenin called them useful idiots. So in 1980, a communist defects. His name's Yuri Bezmenov. He comes to America and he spills the beans. He says, people think a KGB like James Bond. He goes, nah, it's pretty simple. All we do is we study groups. We do critical theory. We study all the different groups and find out which ones we can pit against which ones. And he said um, that it's a demoralizing period and they also want to identify public opinion molders. Right? Because you want to sway the people. So you got to get in charge of the, the people that are molding in the media, in education, and the pulpit. And he says, this is a 20-year period. You invite them to your parties. You invite them to your rich clubs. And they all want to be friends. And you pull them in a socialist direction. And he says, it's so effective. When kids go through this education, you can take them to a Soviet torture prison camp. And they won't believe their own eyes. He says, then the next phase is a destabilizing phase where you get the company to spend, spend, country to spend, 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 right, under the guise of recovery. You get them to waste money on infrastructure and bankrupt them. Then the next is a crisis that you blow out of proportion, fan across the country, get everybody to panic, and then you do your coup or your rigged election. And then there's a normalization. Everybody gets used to uh, the new norm of not having the freedoms they had before. Now, the infiltrating of the churches, I thought it was interesting. A congressman named Albert Herlong, Florida, in 1963, read a list of 45 tactics of the communists. And one of them was infiltrate the churches. 
right? They're a, they're a public opinion molder. And replace revealed religion with social religion. So somebody that lived through this was Manning Johnson, a black man who became a communist and after 10 years realized that they didn't want to help his community. They were just using him to sow division and crises. So he leaves them. He writes a book called Color Communism and Common Sense, and it's free on the internet, uh, but you can also buy my book, and it's got all that in there. Archibald Roosevelt, the son of Teddy Roosevelt, wrote the foreword to the book. And he talks about how they first, the communists first tried doing what they did in Russia. Right? They go into the schools, make the kids spit on the Bible and kick the Bible. But he says the, the minority community in America was too attached to the Bible. They couldn't get anywhere with telling them to forget the Bible. And so he says that they decided to change the gospel. He says the new line went like this. Jesus, the carpenter, was a worker like the communists. He was the, against the money changers, the, the capitalists, the exploiters of that day. That is why he drove them from the temple. Communists are the modern day fighters against capitalists or money changers. If Jesus were living today, he would be persecuted like communists. Right? So forget the fact we're all sinners going to hell and Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, died on the cross to pay for our sins. No, he was just an activist. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent 11 years in gulag camps, said, I call upon America to be more careful with its trust. Prevent those from falsely using the struggle for social justice to lead you down a false road. Now we're getting a little closer to home. Saul Linsky, he's in Chicago with Al Capone's hitmen, Frank Nitti. And Saul Linsky saw that all they had to do was shoot a few people, smash a few windows, and the whole neighborhood would get in fear and trade freedom for security and agree to pay the mob protection money. And so he decided to apply it to politics. And he says, the first step of community organization is community disorganization, right? Satan sowed discord in heaven, Abimelech sowed discord, Machiavelli sowed discord, the British came in to sow discord, Hegel talked about this and Karl Marx. He says, um, disruption of the present organization is the first step. The organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. An organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. The organizer polarizes the issue, helps lead his forces into conflict, for he must search out controversy, for unless there is controversy, the people are not concerned enough to act. Now, I thought it was amazing that Saul Alinsky put an acknowledgement in the front page of his book to Lucifer. This is it. Lest we forget, at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively, he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. The strategy, the tactics we've been seeing taking place in America of the intentional going in, sowing discord, breaking people, critical theory, break people into groups, pit them against each other, haves and haves nots, right? You'll appreciate hearing the entire talk that Bill Federer gave. It's at the link in the notes for today's program. Hearing Bill's brilliant application of his study of history really gives us insight. It helps us grasp more of what Jesus meant in Luke 16, 8 when he said, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own generation than the sons of light. Again, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, and hopefully, when we're equipped with this kind of understanding, we'll make better choices to be the salt and light that God wants us to be in our culture. Get Bill Federer's book, On the Roots of Socialism, at AmericanMinute.com and see his illustrated talk at the link in the notes for today's program. There's more to come next time as we explore God's wisdom for being an overcomer in perilous times. And I look forward to being with you then. This is Dennis Peterson. Until next time.